Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. So, last week we had seen the, um, the, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, come to Cornelius' house and save him and his household. Today we're going to hear about it again, and you'll see for good reason. As we go through this, um, we're also going to hear about the church at Antioch. And one commentator uh, proposed a, a good framework for, um, for how to view this passage based on the perspective of the church in Jerusalem. So you're going to hear in today's passage a connection between the, the early church in Antioch, its, its formation and development and growth, connected with the uh, church in Jerusalem. And so I'll comment on that as well. And then the other thing to highlight about this is that we've talked about the transition that's going to happen in Acts between the ministries of Peter and the ministries of Paul. And this is one of those good, important transitional chapters, uh, and you'll see how that fits as well. So let's dive on in uh, to chapter 11, uh, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were without Judea, I'm sorry, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision, circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So, people are people, right? And here we have Peter coming off probably the biggest spiritual high that he had had possibly ever. He had seen the gospel come to this group of people that people might not have thought could have happened. He's all excited, can't wait to get back and tell what happened. And he gets back and meets a bunch of stick in the mud and says, so, yeah, these people you've been eating with. Right? I mean, really? Look at this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So they had heard what had happened. They knew how big a deal this was. But did they have the banners ready for Peter when he came back? Did they say, oh my gosh, we want to hear this whole thing? Nope. It was all about the people he had been hanging out with and they weren't happy. We know kind of, or we can maybe surmise what had happened. If you go back to verse 48, of chapter 10 it says and he that is Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and then they that is the people that had just got saved asked him to remain there for some days so it may have been that you remember those six guys that were with Peter maybe one of them had to leave early and may have brought the news back of what had happened and uh, so the news preceded Peter 
All right. Here's the accusation. Verse 3. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You could almost hear the big sigh. <sighs> okay. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I want you to hear the subtle differences between this account as Peter's talking to his home church. That church it should have been supportive of what was going on. You know, the 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 originators, so to speak, of the early church. Um, here are the subtle differences in the way he tells the story to them as to how kind of Luke reported it earlier and highlight all of the, the I statements. He makes it very personal. Uh, he's obviously kind of defending himself a little bit here, but he's doing it in a way that's kind of not defensive in the bad way, um, but almost inviting them in to share his story and he's going to basically let the story speak for itself verse 5 I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision and something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to me looking at it closely I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air and I heard a voice saying to me rise Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing, uncom nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Did you hear how personal a story it was? We don't hear about that he was hanging out with Simon the Tanner. That probably wouldn't have been good to lead with that because they were already upset who he ate with. The fact that he was staying with somebody on the margin probably wouldn't have helped his case. So he leaves that out. He doesn't make a big deal about who he went to see, right? He doesn't say... This is a prominent Roman. This is, you know, a, a soldier of all things. Um, doesn't make a big deal about that as either. He just goes and tells the basics of what God did. It's interesting, uh, just from a grammatical thing. If you look at verse 13, there's a lot of. It's it would be hard to say this, right? Because Peter is saying what 
Cornelius says that the angel says. Right? So we're like three layers deep as to what happened. That's kind of a, um, sorting out all those uh, little um, quotes uh, is not necessarily easy, but uh, you get the idea. But I thought that was interesting. So we get this personal story, and then they get it. When they heard these things, they fell silent. In other words, that shut them up. But then they glorified God, saying, Okay, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They got it. They really got it. And you could, you could say, if we use that little connection between the two churches, it was here that the Jerusalem church accepted the Gentiles, right? They accepted the Gentiles. Um, and we, we saw that progression. We saw the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost. We saw um, the believers in uh, Samaria. And now the report makes it back to Jerusalem about what happened at Cornelius' house. And, okay, now they've accepted um, what God has been doing there. So Luke now transitions us to what is going on at the church in Antioch. Um, those of you who were here a few weeks ago, did you get the, um, the map? Do you still have your maps with you? Antioch was just 10 or 15 miles um, inside the coast. Um, if you see that picture of the Mediterranean right in that northeast corner where it starts to come up here, here is Antioch up in that corner. It's about 300 miles up the coast from Jerusalem. Antioch was a big deal. Even back then, 500,000 people. That's a lot. Um, it was the third largest city in the whole Roman Empire. All right, so there's Rome, there's Alexandria, and then there was Antioch. This was a big cosmopolitan place, a crossroads. Um, if you were in that part of the world, you probably went through Antioch to do something. You know, I'm sure there was lots of trade. I'm sure it was a busy port. Uh, you don't have 500,000 people in a spot back in that ancient day unless there was something really going on. There's a, there was a river that went through there. There was uh, some big temples where people would worship there. Um, and it had all of the typical trappings back in the day of a pagan city. You remember um, how we've always talked about uh, the Corinthian church and how pagan and sinful and so forth it was? Uh, Antioch was probably just as bad, very cosmopolitan of what was, um, you know, back in the day. People from all different races were, were hanging out there. It was, a, it, was a, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. So look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So if we flip back, and you, you don't necessarily have to do this, but Acts 8.34, Philip and the eunuch, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked does the prophet say this, about him or someone else? And he goes on, and toward the end it says, 
Philip found himself as Azotus. He passed through, preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. These people had been dispersed because of the persecution over Stephen, and it says to all these different areas, but it says they were mainly looking up the Jews that were there, right? They were mainly speaking, says speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But, verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, the Greeks, the Hellenists. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So picture this, a pagan city. A pagan city. Now, I looked it up to try to see what a comparable city is. They list the city limits proper of Charlotte as around 750,000. The Raleigh area, they say, is around 500,000, right? So picture literally a handful, right? So what if, if I just tagged about a dozen of you and sent you to Raleigh? Nobody has heard of Jesus except maybe just peripherally, probably not in a good way. I just sent a dozen people to Raleigh, a pagan city, and you just go to work. You've got a story to tell, you start telling it. I mean, talk about daunting. I mean, there's no infrastructure, there's no tracks to hand out, no radio ads to buy, um, nobody, you know, supporting you with a monthly gift. You know, you're just up there, maybe your job took you there, uh, whatever happened, but there you are in this metropolitan place, nobody's heard about Jesus, and nobody's even thought about talking to anybody other than the Jews, but they go to work. And it says in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. There was a revival up there, and these people, they didn't even get their name in the Bible, right? They started this work, they did their thing, and they didn't even get their name in the Bible. Except you see the results. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Hey, Barnabas, go check this out. Verse 23, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Barnabas, we know his, his um, nickname was Son of Encouragement. He was an encouraging uh, person. That's exactly who you want. Um, he was sent up there to check things out. So the Jerusalem church thought, okay, you know, you know, he's probably a fairly young guy who can make this trip 300 miles, who can make this trip, who can find where these people are, got to be resourceful, um, who's going to be able to make it back, um, and then who can we 
who can we believe when we kind of hear what's going on? You know, who, who are we going to trust with the report? And he gets up there, and you don't see that he's quizzing them and testing them and finding out who's circumcised and who's not and who's following the rules and who's not, who's interfacing with the Jews and who's not. He just sees what's going on and says, this is the grace of God. Y'all keep it up. Let's, let's keep this thing going. And it says, and a great many, a great many people were added to the Lord. So this is the second time we see a great many people. It's like another wave has happened. The first wave, they're doing their work, a great many added. Now Barnabas comes on board. He encourages them, another wave of people added to the Lord. And then Barnabas says, I got, these people need some help. I gotta, I gotta get them some help. I've gotta. They need some teaching. They, they, they got all this enthusiasm. I, they, they need to know where to go from here. So here's what he does. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus looking for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Um, sometimes you don't have to be everything in a given situation you just got to be able to assess the situation kind of see what's missing and then be willing to go find somebody to fill that spot that's what Barnes did he didn't get all burdened you know, oh my gosh, you know, I've got, I'm going to have to hang out with these people. I'm going to have to, you know, I don't know if I feel qualified for this, you know, but I'll, I'll do the best I can. He didn't feel that guilt. He was like, this is, I, I, I got to find somebody, right? He didn't even assume that it was on him. He said, I got to go, and I know just the person for this job. I, I got to find salt. I gotta find Saul, Paul, because he he is the perfect guy for this. It says for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Um, best we can tell, Christian back in that day wasn't like a good name. It wasn't a positive name. It was probably like a slur probably a you know it was a religious slur um, I can't think and I probably even if I thought of one I probably shouldn't say it uh, of a, an equivalent nowadays but this was a religious slur um, in, in classic New Testament theology Christ is the, the, the Greek version of Messiah so when Paul says Jesus Christ he means Jesus the Messiah it's a title right Jesus you might think of it Jesus the Christ but these were a bunch of Greeks for all they knew Jesus Christ was just like his second name but that stuck and so they added that little Latin tag on it uh, which means little Christ's right and it wasn't necessarily a good thing. Now, 
one of the significant things about this is that remember there's all these different perspectives about who this group of people were um, so and even that they had their own identity crisis among themselves as we kind of see being played out here but the Jews remember they thought them as as um, you know the people that were persecuting they were persecuting the Christians because they thought they were corrupting the Jewish faith right they were saying bad things about the temple and it's going to be destroyed and they're following after Jesus and and all these teachings and they're they're not saying that you have to you know to follow the law and they're doing all this bad stuff so the Jews thought that they were you know rebels right but here you have a lot of the Christians still feeling very connected to the Jews, right? They're saying, well, you know, you're eating with these people who aren't circumcised, you know, there's, you know, so they still see themselves as a branch of Judaism. The Greeks probably didn't know what to think. They, I think it was mostly considered a sect of Judaism too, but they didn't see the distinction right just like if there was some minor faction in the catholic faith we wouldn't be attuned to that that's we don't maybe know much about that i'm sure there are factions in most everything um so here we have uh this um this transition happening and uh when they get their own name when they're first called christians that starts to distinguish them a little bit from this Jewish sect, which is important because from the Roman standpoint, they kind of, the, the, Jew, the Jewish faith was kind of an approved faith, okay? They were kind of recognized by Rome. You remember they kind of had their own deal with the, with the um, up-the-ups there at the temple. They were kind of protected, so to speak. So when the Christians start to get their own name, they kind of move out from under that umbrella of protection that the Romans had kind of given them. Okay, so um, there's a lot in that verse about being first called Christians. So the first section, we saw that the church was accepted the Gentiles were accepted and here we have the Gentiles were encouraged and then in this next phase we see that the Jerusalem church actually receives help from these Gentile believers in verse 27 it says now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. A quick comment that about this little phrase that Luke tucks in there this took place in the days of Claudius um, we can't forget that even though 
we don't necessarily have historical events always tied to the events of Scripture. Many times we do. Many times we do. And it says that, um, that this famine that was predicted is actually record by, recorded by a lot of Roman historians about a lot of bad harvests and famines that happened um, in that time frame. Um, one of the worst one they said was in Judea, was in and around Jerusalem, and they say that that was around 46 A.D., right? So this is 13, 14 or so years after the death and resurrection of Christ that this has happened. So it's, you know, it's taken a while. You know, here it is 13 years or so to move that first you know, few hundred miles, um, but it's set in history. It's it's attested by by non-believers that yeah, there was a famine and and this was predicted by this prophet. And what they do? It says they heard the prophecy, and then the disciples they said, you know what? We need we need to send them some help. It's going to get bad there, and let's send them some some help and. And you have this principle, so the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Um, This change in in the giving, right? You know, as you can give, give. And that's kind of been the, the Christian principle. As you can give, give. And they recognize, hey, these are, this is part of our family. This is part of, we're part of one big movement here. Um, we've got brothers living in Judea and we need to help them and I know you know you already are seeing and rightly so the banners on the TV about you know helping out our friends in the southeast Texas area and and your heart goes out to those people right and and we should help um, when we hear those things but we definitely need to help when we have that that close connection you know, and if there have been people, uh, ministers that have helped you, you know, consider that in your giving. I think that's certainly appropriate. Verse 30, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So at some point or another, Barnabas actually makes it back to Jerusalem, and Saul comes with him, Paul goes with him. They have given their report, they take the money um, uh, down to uh, the people in Jerusalem, and and they gave it to the elders uh, of the church. Now this, you know how we read about back in chapter 7, this group of people who were helping out and that sometimes people have called those people deacons, but we saw that they weren't necessarily deacons. Well, when it talks about elders here, it's not necessarily talking about the formal elders like Paul talks about in First Timothy 3. Uh, this was probably maybe people who had been part of the the more organized church uh, in Jerusalem, the Jewish elders, you know, and uh, but certainly some local leaders there. And uh, the apostles, you know, were probably out teaching, but they had the people there, and they gave them the money to be in charge of it. Um, so Gentiles were recognized as Christians. They were encouraged by the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church actually receives money from these new believers, right? And that shows a connection between those two. 
Um, so what do we learn from this? Let me go through a couple things. Um, briefly, and I found this nice summary of this section. Sometimes well-meaning Christians will not agree with you. That's like a whole lesson right there. Belief in Jesus Christ is the only essential component in salvation. Right? Let's not miss that. There's a reason that Luke puts a story back in here again. It's not about who your daddy is. It's not about what job you have. It's not about what country you grew up in. Belief in Jesus is the only component for salvation. Number three, God is, uses willing lay people in widespread ministries. If the spread of the gospel depended on ordained clergy, it wouldn't have happened. God bless our church leaders. God called out leaders for a reason. Not saying anything against that, but God uses people on the ground. The relationships that we have. There's just not enough of them. Point number four, new Christians respond very well to encouragement. I think old Christians respond well to encouragement too. And then it says, though a derisive term at the beginning, Christian is a name that links us to Jesus. And I, I think those are all good. All right, a couple other things that I thought were good. First of all, what does this say about how to handle criticism? We're all going to get criticized for something. And as soon as we get that criticism, we're like loading up, right? At least I am. <laughs> you know, we're, you know, it's going to be on here, and I'm going to defend myself. And, you know, I've never been in a fist fight, but I, I don't, I don't mind a verbal argument from time to time. Um, not that that's a good thing. Let me, say, <laughs> let me say, um, I think I was probably seven the first time I was called a smart aleck. <laughs> but. This guy makes a point. Peter came back, encountered criticism when he least expected it. I'm sure he was caught off guard. And when he didn't deserve it. Right? But he didn't act like probably we would all want to act. He said, take that deep breath. Right? Calm yourself down a little bit. And he just tells a story. He just tells a story. All right. Let me just tell you. And he tells a sort of way that's, that's winsome and it's personal and it's not antagonistic. And he does exactly what the modern day psychologists who eventually get around to scripture, they talk about you never, when you're in a fight, you never say you, right? Have you heard that? You never get, say you statements. You always say I statements. Almost impossible, <laughs> but Peter does it. I mean, it, if you go back through there and under time, every, every time he says I or me or something like that, it's so many times. So he says, you know, hi, this is what happened to me. I did this. I heard this. I was told this. I saw this. I observed this, right? Uh, I analyzed things this way. And he invites them in to make the same conclusion that he had. And that's a way to handle 
kind of defending yourself. Tell your story and frame that question and bring the person along so that they kind of reach the proper conclusion on their own. That's a way to do it. Another point. Settling something, like, all right, well, I'm glad that's settled. Whatever it is. How many times have you said, okay, glad that's settled. How many times is it really settled? <laughs> right? You're always having to go back and settle it again. So here, the people that were critical, the people of the circumcision, so to speak, they, it says, they glorify God, and they said, okay, we get it. To the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It was settled for a season. It's not going to be long, for it has to be settled again. And then in Galatians, Paul's going to encounter it, and it's going to have to be settled again. Right? Things keep coming up. So, just remember, when you settle something, don't be shocked when you have to settle it again, and take that deep breath, and tell your story. Uh, another principle. Be generous, right? Be generous. I found this quote. I don't know a lot about Winston Churchill. Many of you do, but I thought this wasn't too bad. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Well, that's not bad. That's not bad. It is um, a fancier take on the it's more blessed to give than receive, I think. But, uh, you know, the pattern for, for giving is, is like these people did. See a need. Give as you're able. Not real fancy. And then, of course, the point I made about we need to recognize at this point in the history of the church, and remember, among its other benefits, Acts is a history book. And how many times your social studies teacher trying to, to really get you to feel the, the movements of, of history, that's where we are here, right? So we see the emergence of the name Christian, we see uh, the identity being developed, right? Um, and it's shifting. It, it has been shifting, and now it's going to start to gel. Okay, this is a group of believers together under the name of Christ. It's not just about if you're a Jew. It's not just about if you're Jerusalem. It's not just about, um, you know, how, whether you do the law or not. It's, it's all about Jesus. So they're kind of moving away and gelling as a group. And, and we see that start to happen. So, a pivotal chapter in what's going on. A lot of things going on there. And um, I think it, it really shows um, the, the power of, uh, of a subtle approach by these two men. You know, this is a day when... when power and forceful rhetoric and and sometimes pretty hard speech seems to be the go-to method of getting your point across, right? Did Peter do that? Nope. Could he have done it? He had the keys of the kingdom. He could have made some big pronouncement and say, what? You're questioning me? He could have done that. He didn't do that. 
He just told him a story. And Barnabas, you know, he was an early believer, authorized by the church, recognized as having a certain authority. It was all about encouragement. He didn't do anything heavy-handed. And I think there's a lot of value in soft sell, a lot of value in diplomacy, a lot of value in, in taking your time to make your point. And I'm talking to myself. All right, any comments? I'm going to wrap up. I just wonder who were they ministering to uh, when they were there for a whole year? The question was, who were Saul and Barnabas ministering to while they were in Antioch for the year? All those new believers. And it says, and a great many were added. So I'm sure they were discipling them, teaching them. You know, Paul has had, by this time, about 10 years to be, to be taught through the Spirit. You know, he had been over in Tarsus for a while. So I'm sure he was talking to all those new believers. Mostly um, Gentiles. Mostly Gentiles, yeah. Because that's who was mostly there. All right. Let's close. Y'all can go. Father, we thank you for another passage of your word. We thank you for giving us that glimpse of what the Holy Spirit can do through people who submit themselves to them. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.